Hello and welcome to Teaching Python. This is episode 68, Learning How to Learn with Barbara Oakley. My name's Sean Tiber. I'm a coder who teaches. And my name's Kelly Schuster Perez, and I'm a teacher that codes. So we're very excited this week to welcome Barbara Oakley to the show where we're going to talk about how you learn how to learn. And this is something that is near and dear to our hearts because it feels like that's what we're really trying to help our students do is not so much how to code, but how to learn. And it's something that we spend a lot of time in the classroom and we're really appreciative to have Barbara here because she has literally wrote the book on this, several books, <laughs> and written several very popular Coursera courses. It's a pleasure to have you here, Barbara. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here, Sean and Kelly. So I'm just happy to share. And you are actually teaching some of the most important ideas and approaches, I think, that are going to help students professionally through their careers. Awesome. We're so excited for you to be here. And Yes, like Sean said, we are utilizing a lot. I used your your methods to learn code three years ago. When my boss told me I was going to code in Python, I was like, no. <laughs> and so I needed to teach myself before Sean came in and started teaching. And I had to at least show him that I knew what Python was because he was an avid coder. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for coming. Oh, it's my pleasure. Well, our main topic today is really going to be talking about this whole idea of learning how to learn and how to change your mindset and shift the way that you think about learning. Before we get into that, we're going to start in the same place where we always do, which is with the win of the week. So something good that's happened inside or outside of the classroom. And as we always like to do, we make our guests go first on the win of the week. So Barbara, we'd like you to share something that's gone well this week that you'd like to share with our audience. Oh, I found this wonderful book. And golly, you know, it's at that very early stage of a book where you're like, what was the name of that book? And you haven't checked it a couple of times to see what the name is. But I had just finished a terrible book on the brain last week, which I shall not mention. And, you know, just because I don't want to have them feel bad. But I found this fantastic book. I have always been looking for a book that really explains the brain where it's not you know, this is your amygdala and so forth, but actually really how it all ties together, sort of the flow charts, the algorithm of how the brain works, you might say. And I finally found it. And so I've just kind of started with it and it's like totally awesome. And I'm looking to see if I can find the name of it here. And I know I will. So anyway, I'll turn it back to you, but I found this great book and that's my big, big happy thing this week. That's awesome. We'll share that in the show notes if you find it, because I always love stuff like that. Everyone asks me what I'm reading, and I hardly, only fiction I read is when I'm reading with my kids. And I, I've got a stack and a half on my, my nightstand of all these nonfiction books. So add, add another one to it. I just oh. like buying books. They're, they're, they look good. They're great decorations. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but yeah, they do. They, they make you look smart, you know, whether or not you actually are, but that's a different question. But at least you can fake it that way. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Sean, are you going first or am I? It's up to you. Well, I'll go first since I, I feel, you know, it's a good good one this week. So we have a new listener, Russell Helmstetter, and I was getting into a little bit of a lull in my coding, not keeping up because I teach basics and I'm, I tell the kids I'm the best basics Python teacher in the world because I've done it 28 times in three years and I can get the kids in basics. But I never really 
have a lot of opportunity to push myself. And sometimes when I get out of the routine of doing an extra challenge and learning more about Python, I, I, it tends to go for a little bit of time. Well, Russell, he sent me, he listened to our episode. I'm not sure which one he listened to. We were talking about regex, which everyone now knows that's my favorite thing. It's where you search for patterns within a piece of code or string or list, and you can take out the patterns based on whatever code you put in. And I, I don't know why that part of Python really excites me, but I've been solving those. And he sent me a kata problem to do. And he's like, listen, this sounds like fun. You're going to do a regex. And I was like, challenge accepted. And I sat down and I solved it. And I was, Sean was teaching. And I was like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and I tweeted it out. So I guess that's, that was a really good win that I did it. And someone challenged me and not in a challenge in a bad way, but it was fun. I liked it. And I really liked the way that you solved it too, because it was not just let me sit down and write everything out. You made your your thinking really transparent to yourself by sketching it all out on the whiteboard first before you wrote a single line of code. You thought about how am I going to solve this problem? How am I going to approach it? What are the, the different pieces of this that I need to solve rather than just sitting down and writing code? And that's really the practice and the behavior that we want our students to think about is before you start solving the problem, think about it. Think about the problem itself and how you can solve it. Yeah. And I even showed them the picture <laughs> that I was writing. I was like, don't touch my, don't touch my problem yet, Sean. I, I got to take a picture of it so I can finish writing it. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. What about you? What's your win? So for me, this week is really about these new tutorial projects that I have my students working on. And this is, I think, hopefully the Goldilocks zone of independent learning for our students, because what I'm always searching for is something that connects their interests, the things that they are already excited about or that they find personally interesting with their own learning about code so that they can look at you know something that they like to do and find a way to solve that with code or make it better with code. And where we've gone is from something where I help them every step of the way. And then some of the students are invariably bored because it's not exactly what they want to do, or we make it too open and there's no real guidance and they don't know where to go. And so what we've done is, is curated a list of good tutorials that they can follow where they're still processing it independently. They're following along and they have this opportunity to diverge a bit from the tutorial and make it their own but they have much stronger guidance and structure to it to get started. And this seems to be working so far pretty well. What I'm really excited about seeing with the students is that they're, they're able to kind of dive into it. They see them engaged with it. I see them staying with it, even when no one's telling them, oh, you gotta be looking at your computer right now or writing code. They're wanting to be with it and they're wanting to be engaged with it in a way that doesn't happen when I'm just giving them the assignment or telling them what the, exactly what they have to work on. So. I think it's like a win in progress and I'm, I can't wait to see how long this goes. And then also when they start to stray or get bored, how do we bring them back into something that continues to re-engage them and continues their learning path? So pretty excited to see how that's turning out. Can I ask, is that sort of like giving personalized individual instruction in some sense? So they still are getting the explanation, but it's almost like directly what they want. Or right. Yeah. So they have they have this choice. They have the ability to choose what they want. And I take more of a coaching role than a teaching role. So I can coach them on, well, have you thought about this? Or have you tried that? Or where could you find the answer for this? Rather than being the source of knowledge for them. So 
it works pretty well in terms of balancing that student choice and voice, like their ability to say, I want to do this. I have agency over my learning with giving them some structure and some guidance so that they have something they can look at at nine o'clock at night if I'm not there to be able to help move their learning forward. That is awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, and they, they get a lot of practice. We Something that Sean and I took on in, in all of our levels, because we teach sixth, seventh, and eighth. And so we give them tiny tutorials and screencasts in preparation for this day where they have a big chunk of learning because Sean has about 10 days, 10 classes left of school. So they're going to do their, their demonstration, their demonstration of learning through that. So it's a pretty cool process. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Then they don't have to hear our voices the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) That can sometimes be kind of nice for them. Yeah. Yeah. And I also get those nice moments where they come to me and show me stuff that I don't know about that they found and they discovered. And they're like, hey, did you know we can get real-time stock data from this cool thing? And I'm like, no, but show me how that works because I want to know how to do it. And they can start to become the experts, which is really fun. Oh, yeah. They love that. Uh, Yeah. We all love that. Yeah. Yeah. So let's move on to the fail of the week. So something that maybe didn't go as well in what we learned from it. And and Kelly, I'll make you go first on this one. We won't make Barbara go first. Mine's a really easy one. So after I got that kata, I was like, oh, this is easy. I could totally do a next one. And they give you a next one to try to do. And I open it up. I was like, eh, wrong answer. I didn't even look at it. I couldn't. I was just like, I don't even know where to write this out. So I gave up. I have to go back. So that is a huge fail, the fact of just giving up. But, you know. We all know that there's sometimes you just need to just stop, walk away, and it'll come to you later. So that was my fail. Maybe the good I'll news is up giving, up, <laughs> giving up isn't permanent, right? No. It's not something that is forever. You can always go back, and then you haven't given up. Yeah, I'm just hoping somebody's going to send me another one that I can get challenged on. So, and not you, <laughs> and not you. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have a fail this week, Barb? Well, besides getting names right and wrong at the same time, I'm also, well, I'm working on the next massive open online course, which Coursera asked me to expand to three courses. So I'm like already way behind now. And I'm supposed to be writing all of these multiple choice questions. And it's, I don't know if you ever have to write multiple choice for what you're doing, but to me, I mean, those are really hard to write and you just can't form them out very easy. I mean, it's like it takes a special, it takes a teacher who's a pretty good teacher to write multiple choice questions. And even when I ask people who've read the book and, you know, really research things, they, they just can't seem to write multiple choice questions that get the, so I'm anyway, I'm just, I'm, I guess I'm winding right now because I, I want to be much further ahead. I've got like a hundred and some to write yet. And they, they're staring at me and, and making me feel very guilty. They're not very nice. <laughs> multiple questions, multiple choice questions are difficult because you have that fine line from too easy and not really challenging the learning and being too difficult that you're you're hiding the learning and understanding. So it's a fine line. So. Oh, I disagree. It's really easy to write bad multiple choice <laughs> questions. There's a, about a million of them out there. It's writing the good ones that are hard. Well, it's funny, this one outfit I, I worked with, they were like trying to solicit from students. So, I mean, they solicited something like 10,000 questions and they sent them all to me 
thinking it was going to be helpful for me. And I waded through some 10,000 questions. And I, I think I found maybe like four or five that were actually good. Most of them were just sort of like, just things that were not important. Like you give a number for how many neurons in the brain, but ultimately, who cares? It's not the key point of what you're trying to. So I just, I think one thing that we need to make a required class for all students is how to write multiple choice questions to help your teachers. I love that course. <laughs> I think that's really, and we're going to digress, but two things. Sean probably could have written a Python program to sort through your 10,000. So next time you get 10,000, he can automate that and sort out your questions for you. No problem. Sean's <laughs> like, yeah, thanks. I <laughs> Challenge accepted. Awesome. <laughs> and the second thing is like, I work with teachers a lot in coaching them. And that one aspect of what is that most important thing that you're teaching and what is it that you want your students to get from your teaching is really a hard thing to do for some people. So you know what you want the learners to learn from your courses, and sometimes the students don't get that, and that's kind of, mm. so it's a good problem to have, I think. Yeah. Well, I just to my amazement, my husband is who never seems as if he's paying really close attention to things. He's like the master of fleshing out or of giving at least the bones of a good multiple choice question. He always seems to understand what is the real essence of what you're trying to teach. And I'm like, wow, that's just so awesome. Uh, it, yeah. So Sometimes awesome. it's nice to have in-house talent, right? It, it sure is. Yeah. And he's the man behind the camera. So it really helps. And I see you have some friendly air casting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're have to. We're maybe gonna have to trim that a little bit. But it feels like they're flying right over the roof right now. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting because you know most of my professional career before I became a teacher was about survey questions, which is a totally different sort of thing. And it was mainly there to help get information and help segment people into different groups. So it's more of a statistical measurement than it ever is about knowledge assessment. And so even though I've got a fair amount of experience working with survey data and asking questions, multiple choice questions for learning and for assessment are completely different, even though they have a very similar structure. So it's kind of an interesting parallel between the two. Oh, could you give an example of a difference between learning, you know, and assessment? Well, sure. So like one of the things that you typically want to do, my, my background's mainly in marketing, is you want people to kind of identify what they're most interested in or what means the most to them. So, and you don't necessarily ask them that question directly because they may not be able to articulate it or they may not even have it at the top of their mind. So an example might be, let's say we have two kinds of listeners for the podcast. We have people who are coders who want to be able to teach others. And so they're, you know, so, someone like myself or they're teachers who are learning how to code like Kelly. What are the kinds of questions that we can ask to understand which types of people are generally more like Kelly or more like myself, which then we could use to tailor our messaging a little bit more appropriately to each group. So maybe we could have, instead of one big mailing list, we have a mailing list that's a little bit different for the people who have more of a coding background versus one that's for people that have more of a teaching background. And you can't always ask them, are you more of a coder or more of a teacher? It could be something like, you know, what things are most interesting to you? Or, you know, what subjects do you like to learn about the most? And then from that, you can 
assess what camp or what grouping those people fall into. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So for me, my fail this week was one of with one of my other classes, and it was just one of those moments where I realized I had, and this is a class I've been you know, struggling a little bit with. I don't know if it's because it's the last class of the year that we teach in nine-week quarters. And this quarter with our, our seventh grade students has been a little bit challenging for me. And they're not as self-sufficient and self-directed as I would like. And so Kelly and I were talking about it, about that a little bit. And I think my failure has been that I've, because they haven't been as strong or self-directed from the beginning, I've been maybe over-supportive in my teaching for them and not giving them, or maybe too direct, I guess is the way to put it. So I'm giving more direct instruction instead of giving them opportunities to learn and seek their own path and try to figure things out on their own. So I think that's something that I'm you know, failing at at the moment, but there's still time left in the quarter to be able to salvage it and make it make it right. It's a fine line when you start to code with kids of making sure you have a direct instruction and active, active learning process. And it's been something that's been really cool to see Sean who came from not teaching from maybe just teaching a one-on-one kind of mentor into becoming the teacher that he's he's developed and it's pretty impressive. There's a lot of learning that goes on that people don't realize when teachers have to do. And so, and especially with coding, that was something that, you know, learning learning the code, you just can't go up there and say, hey kids, here, copy these notes. You're gonna learn how to code by copying these notes. You have to somehow add in all these learning theories of having them remember, looking for patterns, doing active, active recovery, a lot of quick quizzing, you know, stop here. I just taught something. Can you tell me what this is and and check in on and teaching them how to quiz themselves. So it's, it's been really fun watching Sean learn all these teaching strategies and he's so reflective and it fails. So it was, it's always a good time when he has a a fail and he notices it because it's a great opportunity to learn more. So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's a good fail. Well, one thing I think that I've been fascinated by, so I've been lucky enough to work with a very good teacher of teachers, Beth Rogowski, writing the next book that will be coming out June 15th, and that is Uncommon Sense Teaching. And one thing that surprised me is when when we use the phrase direct instruction, that does not mean that we're explaining things to them. It actually is a specific mixture of carefully integrated explanation with active learning. So I think what's happened is sort of the, perhaps the anti-direct instruction group has made it sound like direct instruction is when we're just explaining to students, when that is exactly not the case. When we're using direct instruction, what we're doing is we're carefully mixing in explicit instruction with students being able to use active exercises to to really understand what we're doing or what they are supposed to be doing. So I mean that was a real eye opener for me to learn that when I that I should never be using the direct instruction phrase to say that I am giving explicit instruction because direct instruction instead means exactly what you are doing as far as mixing that that explicit instruction with active learning exercises, which indeed has been shown to be really important in learning. And I know before the show even started, we we sort of mentioned 
or you brought up the fact that, Sean, your cousin had been at the Defense Language Institute, which is this totally awesome place. And of course, I found it to be an awesome place as well. I enlisted in the, in, in the Army right out of high school. So at age 18, I went to the Defense Language Institute. And, and this is actually all going to lead back around to direct instruction. But when I was there, I studied Russian for a year and a half, learned it really quite well. I learned it even better later on when I went out and worked on Soviet trawlers as a Russian translator, when I learned all sorts of words I should probably not know at present. But they're the ones that really stick with you. But what I wondered about was, I always thought, you know, I hated math and science growing up. And I thought the only thing I could do is maybe learn a language. And I, I did. I joined the army to learn the language. I learned, and I learned it very well. But when I went to get out of the military at age 26, I couldn't get a job because, or at least not a job that I was looking to get because I was, once you're in the military, it can have many benefits for you. But one of the benefits is that you realize that you would prefer to have control over your career destiny, which is sometimes not really the case in the military. So I decided that if if I wanted to have the kind of job I wanted, I had been doing everything with, you know, follow your passion business, which meant I did only verbal things. And I finally kind of figured that that it, following that advice had led me into a ditch, basically, because I was I was only thinking selfishly about my own wants and needs and not about what the world needed. So I decided to go back to you know the university and see if I could actually learn in math and science. And I applied the ideas and techniques for learning a language to learning in math and science. And lo and behold, they worked beautifully. And I wondered what on earth is going on? How could that happen? Because according to modern reform mathematics educators, you know, practicing sort of drill is kill, you know, it should not have worked at all. And instead it worked beautifully. I mean, it was like drilled to skill. That's how I got my skill was through practice. And now through all these years, it's sort of the, the magic doors have opened and I've begun to understand why learning a language could possibly have been helpful for me in learning in math and science. And so should I get into the weeds? Sure. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> so you can think of it as the brain just has two major freeways going through it. And they both lead to long-term memory, but they're different freeways. So the first freeway leads from, you know, your working memory, what you're holding temporarily in mind through your hippocampus into long-term memory. This is the declarative pathway. You're aware of it. So you're probably aware of paying attention to us speaking here. So, but the other pathway is called the procedural pathway. And that highway goes through the basal ganglia. We are not aware of it. So when you're learning through this pathway, you do something like, okay, I got this bat in my hand. I'm going to hit the ball with the bat. Now, my working memory says to the basal ganglia, hit 
the ball. The basal ganglia attempts to control everything to help you hit the ball, and maybe it's successful. All you're aware of is, I hit the ball. You are not aware of how you learn to hit the ball. The only way you learn this, or that you can develop this basal ganglia procedural set of links in long-term memory is through lots and lots and lots of practice. So that's the kind of thing you do at the Defense Language Institute with learning a language and so forth. So the magic was that when I went back to the university and tried to learn remedial high school algebra and started studying Fortran, (laughs) (laughs) I was using this, not only the declarative pathway, which I'm conscious of, but I was also practicing a lot so that I could look at an algorithm, say, or look at what I wanted an algorithm to be doing, and I could instantly pull to mind what that algorithm was. So, and it wasn't something like I'd have to go, now, wait a minute, okay, consciously, what do I need to put down into, you know, coding or whatever? It was flash, I got it, it's quick. And that's because that is the magic of the procedural pathway. It, it is really, really fast. It's not very flexible, but that's okay. You know, I mean, if you learn to type on the keyboard, you want to be fast, you know, unless you have some imp that reprograms your keyboard, you, you will be very fast. But a lot of the basics that we use in coding, that we use in, you know, knowing algebra, knowing how to take a derivative, whatever we're doing, it's actually laid through those procedural pathways that only take, they only arise in long-term memory through lots and lots of practice with them. So unfortunately, I mean, part of what we do that's really, really good is in the classroom, we give explicit instruction, which lays a very faint set of links in long-term memory, very, very faint. But then we give the kids the possibility to practice actively with it. And especially with retrieval practice and something where they're actively kind of making it happen on their own, that helps build those sets of neural links. And the more they practice, they don't only have those sets of links in their declarative memory, they start developing them in the procedural portions of memory. And you know, we used to think that's just for physical sports and so forth. No, it's for mental things too, like like coding. And so the more we can, I mean, we need to give some explicit instruction, but we also need plenty of practice. And that's that direct instruction, the, the mixture of explicit with lots of practice on their part, that active learning. And that's like this dynamic duo that really helps develop sets of links, both in declarative long-term memory and and in the procedural long-term memory. And we draw on both of them when we're doing anything that's complex, whether it's playing chess, going and dancing, doing coding, speaking a language, whatever it is. So it's uh, to me, it's just an enormous breakthrough to realize that we've got to place sets of links in, in both that declarative and that sort of procedural pathway, which has previously been, you know, dismissed as drill and kill when it should be 
sort of put on a bit of a pedestal as drill to skill, that mixture is what can make for students who are real experts at what they're learning. I love this. So like, as you're talking about this, a couple things came into mind and, and then I'll let Sean finish up. But a lot of people always ask us about a curriculum and what is it that what we're doing that's getting kids in nine weeks to code the products that they're coding for us. We have 11 year olds and and they really do code a lot. We we talk minimal and they are always typing. And it is that for me as well, it was that constant hundred days of code, writing again, watching the tutorial, writing it on my own, shutting the tutorial, writing it again. That finally got me to get this retrieval going. I love this this idea that drill and practice, drill to skill concept because kids can code and they often come in and say, I can't code, I can't do computers. No, follow me, trust me, trust the process. Sean and I always say, trust the process. I promise you, you're not only going to learn to code, but you're going to be probably good at it. So... Yes. Well, see, there's a related, I mean, earlier in our conversation, you had brought up the idea of pattern and recognizing patterns. And what people, what educators often don't realize is that procedural drill and kill is actually, that is an extremely sophisticated basal ganglia system, which is actually the brain system that recognizes patterns. So when we diminish students, you know, practicing and kind of drilling with various, not just doing the same thing over and over and over again. And that's not what drill often is. It's often, you know, it's well-designed drill is you're interleaving sort of different aspects, doing spaced repetition, you know, and of course, retrieval practice and so forth. But what all of these things are doing, they're not like just making your building your rote memory. I mean, well, maybe they are, but they're doing it in a very deeply sophisticated way that allows you to recognize very different kinds of patterns. In fact, the procedural system is how we learn our native language. And it recognizes all those patterns of, you know, the irregular verbs, the regular verbs, the this and the that. And and it, it's a really, it is our brain's pattern recognition system. So the more you've got, you know, well done, well designed drill, it will really help you skill because you'll more, much more easily recognize those patterns. It reminds me a lot of what I've been learning about machine learning and the way that we train mathematical models and train computers to perform tasks or to learn how to do things. And there's this problem of overfitting if you train the machine too narrowly to solve like a really narrowly defined set of problems. It can only do that. It becomes very brittle and it can't solve really what you want it to do. It can only solve one thing. And so this idea of the drill to skill, it has to be well designed. It has to be something that trains what we're really looking for, not necessarily the the specific problem, but it's training that broader skill set or the broader knowledge of being able to being able to solve a problem or to recognize a pattern of something. And that pattern doesn't have to be so literal and explicit. It could be the pattern of I have a problem, I see 
the aspects of the problem. I know how to break that down into smaller pieces and solve it in a you know computational way and then put it back together again. And that could be the drill, not specifically this algorithm or this problem or you know something that they've seen a lot of times. It could be the more general or abstract skill. Is that fair? Like, Am I understanding that correctly? I think so. But the understanding of that abstract skill takes place in the basal ganglia. And unless you are able to do extremely sophisticated mathematical modeling, which they are just beginning to kind of burrow into, no, nobody really understood how the neural network of the basal ganglia was actually working. But what, what I think is fascinating is that our understanding of how the procedural, you know, basal ganglia habitual system is working has gone kind of hand in hand with our with the development of our understanding of how machine learning algorithms actually begin to do things like recognize faces and so forth that that our basal ganglia pattern detection is very similar to how, you know, how a system begins to recognize what's a giraffe from lots and lots and lots of pictures of giraffes. And in fact, our, our that basal ganglia system is just, it's operating off of plenty of input. And it, we're training, you know, our machine intelligence system in some sense. And, but we have to watch what we train with because it can certainly overfit, but it also can, if we're training, you know, there's, I'm sure you know about the giraffe problem, where if you train off of sets of data from the internet with lots and lots and lots of sets of pictures, what can happen is that your system will, that's analyzing what is this critter or thing you're looking at, will like as not come back and say it's a giraffe you know, and why? And it's just because there's so, I mean, there's, there's not pictures of all everything out there. There's like pictures of unusual things. And so it turns out there's like way more pictures of giraffes than you would ever really expect out of, you know, a normal data set. So that's why, you know, analysis of pictures often comes back and just says, oh, you've got a giraffe here when it sees a water tower or something like that. But your brain is doing that too. Like, let's say that you are, well, you know, even if in today's fraught society, but if you are of one set of political beliefs versus another set of political beliefs, you're actually feeding input into your procedural system that is teaching you about something, but it's from a restricted data set. And you will swear it is not restricted that you read the other side too, but you actually usually just read the massaged data that's just input to you by your side. So then your data set becomes biased. You're unaware of it. It's in your basal ganglia system, but this is the interesting part that it isn't just input into your basal ganglia system. It also comes out of your basal ganglia and it subconsciously influences your ability to think in a critical way about something. You will swear up and down that you are, you are being completely logical, you're following every little thing that is just a logical pathway, 
but you are actually being deeply swayed by the value function that arises from your procedural system. It just sends out these signals and it sort of says, look, this is how I've been trained, so this is what you should really find. And and we find that also in education. So for example, people who have been trained in a certain way with a certain set of theories as adults, you know, the last thing they want to find is that maybe neuroscience is saying something different than what they've been taught about how you should teach. And so they'll use their intelligence to kind of find a way, because they're biased by their basal ganglia system, you know, they're going to find something that kind of goes in accordance with all of their previous training. But they're all, they're completely unaware of it. So this is why we get things like the math wars, the reading wars, you know, and educational theories that just won't die no matter how they might be disproven or or problematic. It's interesting. I'm, I may be thinking of it because we have the Blue Angels flying overhead, but I listened to a fascinating podcast by a product or project manager at DARPA, and he's talking about some of these advancements that are coming in AI and in autonomous warfare for fighter pilots. And he was saying that half of what he's working on or half of his focus is not so much the technology, it's the culture of overcoming people's biases, that you have to figure out how to talk to them in a way that helps them become more open to changes. And he said, talk about people who are highly trained. They've been trained for their entire career to think in a certain way, to operate in a certain way, to value certain things. And their experiences along the way of their training have reinforced those beliefs. And he said, they're not wrong. It's just that they may be becoming out of date with the way that things are moving. So how do we help them translate or, or change their trajectory from continuing that path that may be influenced by what they've learned, I guess, in their basal ganglia now as I'm learning this, and help them move in different directions and become more open to new ideas and new approaches and new ways of solving problems that they may not have even considered a few years ago? What a great way of putting things, because... The reality is, you know, people may seem like stick in the muds or that they're deliberately, you know, trying to put up barriers, and they may be, but often it's because, you know, it's not because they're evil people. It's just that they've had a certain set of data come in that they've formed their conclusions from. And it may be hard for them to even open their mind, you know, given all their previous, you know, data, Maybe hard for them to kind of open up a little bit and say, yeah, it's okay to let new data in here because, you know, sometimes data is kind of malarkey. <laughs> you know, you get a little used to that. You turn into a curmudgeon. But, you know, that was a really, I think that was a very nice way and, and actually a, a right way of putting, you know, that fine line between, you know, how do you gently lead someone forward who has lots of experience, but maybe not experience that you want them to have. So I want to kind of not switch gears, but kind of tag on, because this is a question I had that comes to mind. Because three years ago, like I said, I, I didn't know how to code. I, I do block code and, you know, I help with computers. I get computers, but my mind, I, I was telling, thinking to myself going, I couldn't do this. And then I 
once I, everyone laughs here because now I'm like, everything's Python. I love Python. It's like, I'm the advocate of learning how to code. And I was trying to explain to people that I don't know what happened, but my brain just went, you know, boom, it changed. And I felt like there was like this thinking that happened that's a different way of thinking, a different way of solving things. I was a science teacher, a biology teacher, so everything was rote. There was, for me, it was, here's how I do science, here's your cell, here's your mitochondria, here's your water. So everything was very succinct and and encapsulated into the biological field. I wasn't a doctor or anything. But when I started doing the code, it just, everything started to turn into a different way of problem solving. So I guess my question is, is like, what is that? Why, (laughs) what happens in that, in that brain that makes it open up or change or does that make sense, my question? <laughs> it's a really good question, and it's, you know, it's deeply related to motivation. And this is why, so that book that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast is called A Thousand Brains, A New Theory of Intelligence by Jeff Hawkins. And what I really like about it, even as he's beginning the book, he's saying, I have always believed that the brain is nowhere near as complicated as they always make it out to be. That if you really understood sort of the the flow chart of what's actually happening, it's much simpler. And he begins to explain why it is the case and why it actually is pretty simple to understand. And I'm sitting there going, this is so music to my ears. And as a young person, he had been, he had wanted to come up with a sort of a systems theory of how does the brain work. And he was going to, you know, he was applying for university to be a tenure track professor. And they were like, well, you know, sorry, but that's not something we really do. You have to get in there with the rats for a while and just, you know, with little mundane problems. And he didn't want to do that. So he just did not go into academia. Instead, he started his own companies. And I mean, he's a really, he's the kind of guy who's so brilliant that he, he can explain things really simply. So anyway, part of, I think, what he's beginning to lead to is this idea of how do you make sudden big changes in your thinking? And I'm getting the sense, and from what else I know, but I I would be able to answer this better, much better next week. But see, your brain is an enormous prediction machine. It is always predicting things. So I've always wondered, well, you know, I read all these papers and it's like, well, yeah, you predict, you know, that you're going to eat this blueberry and it's going to taste good. But I'm like, yeah, but how does the prediction really happen? And he's talking more about sort of the prediction, you know, more general prediction. So I get the sense that your prediction in your brain was that coding was icky, you know, it was just not a pleasant experience at all. And then you had an experience where it wasn't so bad. And that difference between your prediction of what it was and what actually happened can make enormous rewiring take place in your brain. You get this little dopamine hit and that actually all the little rewire or all the little neural connections that led to you being able to be successful in whatever that little coding experience was that you had, 
those suddenly were reinforced by that that hit of dopamine. And so I can imagine that very quickly your your predictions about how you're going to like coding are going to they're just going to be rewired because you're starting to get these pleasant you know, little uplifts, endorphin hits, dopamine hits. And those are the kinds of things you're also supplying to your students. You know, it doesn't need to be, you know, gigantic, but it can turn into it. You just get a few of those, oh, hey, I was successful here. I got this. And it starts, I think, it can start rewiring all sorts of predictions about what you can do and make it more, much more pleasurable. We just got our definition for the click. Sean and I call it the click because usually around week five, you see it in sixth graders. And we were just like, it's called the click. We see it. I get goosebumps every five weeks because I have these little 11-year-olds who have never coded in a script language or in Python or anything. And then they come in. They're like deer in the headlights. She wants me to do this. And then all of a sudden, five, you know, between five and four and six weeks, all these little kids go click. I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it. So there you go, Sean. Dopamine. We have the scientific <laughs> well, brain we, definition. We have definitely recognized it. We see it happen in the classroom. And I think it's one of the reasons why coding and many other professions, if you can identify that, those moments can be so rewarding. And and I mean, you can hear it. Sometimes it's an audible gasp in the room. Like, <gasps> it worked right <laughs> and they can they can feel it right it's like it, it is that big moment especially when they've had so many potential failures along the way they had 10 right. times where it didn't work so they've their brain has been conditioned well the 11th time it's definitely not going to work because it hasn't worked the last 10 times and then when it happens it jars their expectations right it, it goes counter to that they have that moment of delight and we try as often as we can to take like a time out and say hey did you feel that did you feel that thing that just happened that moment of excitement that it worked that's the reason why people like to code is because you get those moments and as you can put them together it becomes really satisfying and it becomes its own reward overall to be able to solve the problems and to make it work and to have those moments where it's like, ooh, it, it worked. And I, I told them I've been coding for most of my adult life and I still get those moments and I love having them. And, and you know, half of what I'm doing is reward seeking that next moment of excitement, <laughs> yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> exactly. And see, I think that the mistake that some STEM educators have made is they try to get that reward without building in the structure of the learning that has given that reward. They try to, I mean, sure, you get dopamine if you throw an egg off a building, but you're not necessarily really learn, really learning anything about physics, not much. And so this is what David Goldberg has, has called the math and science death march as kids have had fun through high school without necessarily learning a lot and then they get to college and they don't really know how to learn and they get into calculus say and they they just drop out because they they've gotten those little endorphin rushes or dopamine hits but they haven't done what you've been doing by teaching them you know to give them that genuine hit from the learning you know not from just having fun. Well, and it's kind of, I think it to take that egg drop analogy, right? 
it's like if they drop the egg off the building and it survives the first time, they haven't really learned anything, right? Because it just it just worked the first time and it, there wasn't really any learning there. But if they are given a dozen eggs and 11 times it fails and along the way they're constantly improving and constantly improving and they're finding Absolutely. new ways to to try to save the egg and on the 12th egg it survives, that endorphin or that dopamine hit is the reward that reinforces their learning because they've had those failures. They've had those moments where it hasn't worked but they've iterated and improved upon it all the way along, that's when the, you know, the learning really takes root. So there are ways to do this, but a lot of that involves failure. And we are so afraid of that, right? We're afraid of the failure and being able to learn from it in the classroom, that that's something that we have to kind of deprogram our kids about that if something's hard or if you fail along the way, it's okay. It doesn't mean that you're going to fail the class, right? Failing, failing, or fail to, life. Yeah, or fail life, <laughs> right? right? Take them off the deep end for that. But I think there's ways to do that that are good, you know, to reinforce the value of failure. And there are ways to do that are, that are bad. And the, the ways that to do that are good. That are good. So, for example, when students in my engineering classroom would get a problem wrong or something like that, you know, I'd just be like, you know, you're so close. If we have a tweak, you know, and I'd find, I don't care how far off base they could be, I could find a way to make it look like, you know, you're almost there right. and be excited about it and so forth. But the bad way, you know, to have a learning culture of failure is to reward failure because the brain learns what it's rewarded by. So if you're rewarding failures, you're actually teaching students if you get this wrong, you're going to be rewarded. You should get it wrong more often because that's where you're going to really be rewarded. And I'm sorry, but I do not want my doctor or my the designer of the plane that I am riding on, I don't want them to have gone through an education system that rewards failure. So I think a safe environment that, you know, gently buffers failure is great. But you have to just be a little careful because if you're too sort of like if you reward failure and don't care about success, you're training that procedural system, but it's not what you want to be training that system with. So, you know, you really do want to get that, oh, wow, I got it right after all these failures. I, because the brain learns with the difference in expectation between what it was, you know, what it was envisioning would occur versus what actually occurred. That is the only time that you you actually learn something. So you you know, it's that disparity that is the teacher. And, you know, so you want to encourage those moments of disparity because that's where they're gonna learn. Yeah. We've been playing around for the past three years with things like grading and trying to increase the active, you know, practice rote, not practice rote, but practicing of code, you know, playing around with these numbers and the grades because everyone has to give grades in our class. Personally, Sean and I would all like to say, yes, you can code. No, you can't keep going. But we've been trying to play around with this so that the kids have these desirable difficulties, these mm -hmm. challenges that are really hard. But at the same time, 
aren't going to make them fail the class, but at the same time, they want to solve it. So we've been playing around yeah. with, here's our homework, our homework, and this is what I tell them. You have to do the homework. There's no there's no exception. I will put a zero. It's a hundred points. Sean says a million. He likes to do the no points matters <laughs> thing. But this is like a hundred points and and you're gonna do it or they're gonna fail my class because this is where all their practice comes from. And then every week we're gonna have these check-ins, these classroom quizzes that cost like ten points. And they're going to be hard. And I guarantee you're probably going to get five out of ten. And you're probably going to fail them. And it's going to look like an F on your card, report card. But it's only ten points. So we're trying to push that where they have to challenge themselves. And they realize, they're realizing, and I'm not sure, we haven't figured out if it's the perfect system. It's a system that's working right now. Mm-hmm. But they've realized that if I don't do that hundred points of work, if I don't work those you know, three, four hours of practicing and typing and typing and typing, they're not going to get the class challenges. So it's starting, you know, it's starting to come along where they're getting that click moment where, oh, I have to put in that skill, that drill in order to solve these unique problems that they've never seen before. And it's been fun playing with their little minds. (laughs) But everyone always questions us. They're like, how many lines of code can a 10 year old really write? And I'm like, this is a 500 line program. They've written more code than I wrote, you know, a year ago or two years ago. So it's, it's been interesting. And, and I always attribute a lot of this stuff to this learning methods and learning how to learn. And I tell them, this is me trying to teach you that this is how you learn. This is how you can learn. And Sean does a great job of this as well. We're not, we don't care if you code. We want you to learn how to learn so you can learn how to do engineering, so you can do a math, so you can speak a foreign language. This is going to help you. So we thank you for that. <laughs> You're doing great work. It's so it's such a treat for me to speak with such natural and intuitive teachers. Boy, I wish I'd had you guys as teachers when I was young because I think it would have made a really big difference. I mean, I remember asking some questions when I was a kid And, you know, like, I remember with, you know, the axioms, Euclid's axioms, and I was like, well, what if they don't, you know, what if the lines do intersect somehow at infinity? I mean, how do you really, really know that Euclid's right on this? And they're like, you know, kind of like, you idiot, you know, of course they don't, they can't do that. That's just the way it is. And of course, you know, there's a whole non-Euclidean geometry you know, that involves this kind of thing. And if I, if my teacher hadn't just kind of always, I think one challenge that we have sometimes is that our teachers in Finland, for example, they, they have to have a degree in whatever subject they're teaching. And I think you can become a very, very good teacher of, of a subject that you, you don't know very well or at least that you didn't know well. But you have to be the kind of person who's really willing to kind of dive into it and learn it. And in that sense, you can be a brilliant teacher because you're still kind of in touch with, you know, what the students struggled with. But sometimes it is a bit of a struggle, I think, to, you know, coding is just so important. And to have your abilities and your, you know, what the students are learning from you is really way, way, way more than just coding. I mean, it's more opening a big set of career doors that is going to be valuable for them all their lives. And I, I never knew that, so I kept away from it. But, you know, we didn't have opportunities. I certainly didn't have teachers like you. 
Thank you. Mm-hmm. One final thought, and, and I saw this, it was a Twitter question. So it's, I mean, it didn't seem as deep at the beginning when I first saw it in 140 characters or less, but the question was, would you rather have all the questions or all the answers? And I thought that that was an easy one to respond to. I would always rather have the questions, right? Because you're never limited by the kinds of questions you ask. In fact, being able to ask questions and be able to say, well, how do we know this is really true? Opens up the world to you, right? Having all the answers is, is a finite set, right? But the questions are infinite. And that's what makes learning really exciting when you can ask all these questions and have them taken seriously and have a teacher who says, I don't know, but that's a really good question. Let's go find out. And those are my favorite moments in the classroom is when, when students ask me questions that I don't know the answer to, and we get to go explore together because then we're all learning. Yeah. Our favorite, sorry, Barbara, our favorite thing is when they give like, how do you do this? We're like, that's a Googleable question. But Sean and I get, we always look at each other when someone asks a question. I'm like, oh, I don't know. Do you know, Sean? And, and he's like, no, that is a great question. So we, it's one of those moments where we get really proud of. So, Well, I do have to say, so one time there, there was a teacher in Michigan and a fourth grade teacher. And she was like, my class, I would really like for you to meet my class and for my class to meet you. And so she got a bus and she took her fourth grade class down and I gave them a little presentation. You know, mostly I just stood in front and I I, I just talked a little bit about my past and so forth. Oh my, we're, we're talking. These kids had the toughest questions. Well, why? Why exactly? What is going on when you exercise? Tell me what it, what are the connections? How are they being made? And I'm sitting there like, oh, my word. You know, I mean, they were, because they didn't, you know, they didn't know what they weren't supposed to ask. And they, boy, they just let loose. So then I go and I speak at the Santa Fe Institute, which is, you know, a very prestigious physics institute in New Mexico. And so my friend there, Cormac McCarthy, he's right before I go on to give my presentation, he says, Barb, you know, they're all physicists here. They ask really tough questions. And I'm like, okay, I'll see. You know, and I give up, I give, you know, I get up, give my presentation, everything. And it was like they were pussycats. I'm looking at, I'm like, you know, fourth graders ask more intelligent and deeper questions. I mean, not that they were unintelligent, but they ask way deeper and more penetrating questions. So I do think that our young people really do hold, if not all the answers, many of them. Yeah, definitely. They lack that person or that mindset that says, no, you can't do that yet, or no, that's not possible. And I always tell them, take a journal when you're coming up with these things that they want to code and write it down because in a couple of years you're going to someone's going to tell you you can't do that you can't do that because their ideas and their concepts are still so young and so fresh mm-hmm. that it's just beautiful it's beautiful so i yeah. love i love younger kids love teaching them well we've gone longer than we were hoping for i mean I'm this like, has been more such a and more time Sean. more time <laughs> who, who so needs sorry. to cook dinner for who needs to cook dinner for my kids i don't care no, <laughs> well barbara if people want to learn more about how to learn and and find out more about your courses and your books where's the best place for them to get started oh just go to my website barbaraoakley.com and it's got links to all my books so the newest ones coming out are 
uncommon sense teaching about more effective teaching that is based on what we know from neuroscience, but it's really fun and that pictures are awesome. And then also learn like a pro that these books will both be coming out in June and learn like a pro is, is like, how can you learn more effectively? And it's a, a small book and it was really hard to write because condensing everything was, and then I teach learning how to learn with Terry Sanowski. It's one of the world's most popular massive open online courses with over 3 million students so far and counting. So it's, you know, there's all sorts of things there. So just check it all out. And wow, I just so appreciate it. What a wonderful, I feel like I'm sitting here speaking with old friends instead. <laughs> so thank you. thank you for having me on your show. Well, I just have to add, I've taken both your courses online during COVID because, you know, what else do we do? I took learning how to learn pre-COVID, but I took it again during COVID. And I just have to say, it's a great, it's a great book. Mind Shift is one of my favorites. I liked that, that whole concept of, I was like, oh, I shifted my mind and it's free. It's free. It's free. It's free. It's awesome. So I've told, a, I've told a lot of my teacher friends to take these courses and everyone who's taken them have enjoyed it thoroughly. So if you haven't seen it, go check it out. Yeah. And for me, you know, kind of coming into this space that Kelly inhabits so effortlessly, when I was researching for this episode and I was reading more, I kept having these moments like, oh, that's why that worked when I did that. Or, oh, I see a little bit of why that didn't work when I was trying to do it this way instead. And so, you know, if you're a reflective person and you want to learn more about yourself and the way that you learn things, I highly recommend looking at Barbara's work. She's got a really great insight into the way we think, the way we learn, and can't recommend it enough. But um, I can't teach as well as you guys do. So. <laughs> We'd love to have you in the class. I can teach you Python and get you coding in nine weeks, I promise. Quick question, what is after Python? What's gonna be the next big language? It's a good question. There's a lot of different languages that are good for different things. And I think we're getting into this really cool place in computer science where it's not so much that there's one language superseding another, they tend to go in favor, but it, it tends to be the right tool for the job. And there's a lot of really good tools out right now that can work well depending on what you need. And so Python is really popular right now because it's relatively easy to learn, but it scales up really beautifully into a lot of advanced applications. And there are other languages like Rust that are very popular. Good old C has been around for forever and is doing amazing things on hardware. So it's kind of just picking the right tool for the job now. And it's kind of a wonderful place to be in, in coding and computer science at the moment. Wow. Well, thank you. And I'm not ready to learn a new language. <laughs> not yet. Not, not yet. Uh, yes, our power of yet is one of our sayings here. Power of yet, not yet. Yes. <laughs> so for us, if you'd like to learn more about our show or view past episodes, you can see our website at teachingpython.fm. We're also on Twitter at teachingpython. And let's see here, what's the latest? Oh, I'm on Polywork now, which I still haven't figured out. So one of my things I do is try to join a new social network every week or two and just see what they're about. But Polywork's the new one and it's really cool. They're kind of doing the opposite of LinkedIn, where if LinkedIn is all about the things that you've accomplished and, and your professional resume and everything, this is, I think, a little bit more genuine, authentic. They have badges. And one of the badges that you can get is college dropout. And you know, you get college dropout, you get all these different things, and it's really celebrating your journey and your path to where you are today. 
no matter where that took you. So I think that that's a really interesting way of approaching it. And I'd highly recommend to keep an eye out. I think they're closed right now, but they have a wait list if you want to join. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Kelly, is there anything I'm forgetting at the moment? No, not okay. yet. Okay. Well, then we'll wrap it up by saying, Barbara, thank you so much for joining us. You are welcome back anytime you'd like to come back and talk about learning and teaching. Anytime you want, we will make space to record with you. It's been an absolute joy. Oh, a pleasure for me as well. Thanks again. So for thank Teaching you. Python, this is Sean. And this is Kelly, signing off.